In July of 2009, surgeons prepared to remove the organs of Carolyn Burns, an overdose patient who they believed suffered a devastating neurologic injury and wouldn't have any meaningful recovery. That is, until she woke up on the operating table. In January of 2014, a Kenyan man named Paul Maturo was declared dead after swallowing an insecticide. He was being prepared for embalming in the morgue when he had the opportunity to ask the staff to stop what they were doing. Were these the first medically documented zombies or is the diagnosis of death, particularly brain death, a bit more complicated when it comes to overdoses? If you want answers, keep listening. This is The Poison Lab. everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. Today, we're talking about an incredibly complex topic in the field of toxicology, determining brain death in an overdose patient. And we're doing it through the lens of a drug we just did a full episode on in February, bupropion. Throughout the episode, we'll be talking about how we deal with the fact that certain drugs can actually cause absent brainstem reflexes and mimic the diagnosis of brain death. Being diagnosed with brain death can be one of the last steps before going for organ donation or withdrawal of all medical care, something we call comfort cares, where we just make someone as comfortable as possible while they pass away. And I don't think I need to explain to you that having your organs taken from you or having medical care withdrawn from you while you still have a good chance of living out the rest of your life is not ideal. We'll be reviewing guidelines from the American Academy of Neurology on how to actually determine brain death, as well as position statements from the American College of Medical Toxicology on the limitations of those guidelines. You're going to hear from position statement authors, from authors of case reports of brain death mimicry, and a few other special guests like PhDs and, well, other podcast hosts. And remember, we're examining this through the lens of bupropion, but these concepts apply to any substance that's been implicated in brain death mimicry. Baclofen, barbiturates, alcohol, carbamazepine, valproic acid, tricyclic antidepressants, magnesium, neurotoxic snake bites, organophosphate insecticide, ethylene glycol, the list is non-exhaustive and continually growing. We're focusing on bupropion because it's an increasingly common overdose that has severe medical outcomes and a number of case reports piling up of brain death mimicry. If you listened to our February episode on bupropion called A Prescription for Heartache and Seizures, we actually talked to an author of a bupropion brain death mimic case report. And you'll hear them on this episode as well. We're also going to hear from another author of a bupropion brain death mimicry case report. And we'll go a little bit more into the details of each case. Together, we're all going to examine the conundrum of how we deal with the fact that drug overdoses can cause true brain death from serious neurologic injury, such as cardiac arrest. But they can also mimic brain death and potentially cause a patient to go inappropriately to comfort cares or organ procurement when they still had a chance to live out the rest of their life. Now, before we jump into the meat of this episode, we have to introduce a few concepts. And most of these concepts live in the world of critical care. 
This is where most of the brain death testing is happening, in your ventilated patient who potentially has a devastating neurologic injury. So I can think of no one better to help me introduce some of these concepts than Nick Peters. He is a pharmacist and the host of the Pharmacy to Dose Critical Care podcast. I ran into him at the Empower RX first ever in-person emergency medicine pharmacist conference in Austin. I realized he would be a really great person to have on the show and help us explore some concepts that will be helpful for the rest of the episode. So, Nick, would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, those are kind words, Ryan. Thanks so much. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Nick Peters. I'm a uh, I'm one of those critical care pharmacists practicing in the emergency room. Um, but I I kind of jack of all trades, master of none. So I work in Indianapolis um, and will float through different ICUs and, and cover the EDs. I mean, like you said, also host a podcast. I appreciate the free plug there, my friend. So, Nick, I have a question for you. How do we know we're alive? <laughs> Is it because we can hear the thoughts in our head? Right. It's it's a little bit more clear <laughs> with you and me, right? Or someone who's walking and talking and obviously interacting. But it can be a little bit of a complex question. So let's talk about two scenarios. I want to present two patients to you. And I'd love if you could tell me what would normally happen to these patients based off your experience in the ICU. So let's talk about Ben and Jerry. Ben is a 50-year-old male who has a cardiac arrest at home. He is brought to the hospital by emergency medicine services, and we get his pulse back. He has ROSC, and he's not initially doing very much neurologically. Gets cooled. Eventually, this is, let's say, on day two. You know, he starts responding to painful stimuli. Uh, you know, if you Give him a sternal rub, he'll grimace. You know, he's moving extremities actually on his own. What would normally happen, I guess, in the course of this person's care? They've had a cardiac arrest. Neurologically, there's definitely, you know, they're not talking to you, but they are moving around. Um, what, what what do we usually see happen in this scenario? That's a really great question because you, you make a good point that um, they... Uh, the kind of comatose presentation can be hard to distinguish, you know, what's going on underneath that. So um, with, with Ben here, it's day two and all he's having some response to painful stimuli and moving extremities. So um, one of the emphasis um, always when we're dealing with patients who are, you know, critically ill, such as someone who just went through a cardiac arrest is goals of care. So obviously the first thing we'll do is make sure whatever we're doing is in line with what we think Ben would want. Um, but typically what would happen in these scenarios is they're having some movement, right? They're having some activity. Now, does this mean that, that Ben is going to be able to leave the hospital and go right back to his job? Probably not, but he has brain activity. And so what will typically happen if they're going to, um, you know, keep allowing him to try to have some more brain activity, right? Keep further waking up. And so what they'll do is kind of go down the route of you'll hear trach and peg. So they'll, they'll put a tracheostomy in, they'll put a peg tube in and kind of allow for transition for comfort a little bit, um, hopefully off the ventilator, at least on the lowest settings, maybe at night, and then starting to get them ready to eventually go to a facility with the hopes that with rehab, physical therapy, and care, they'll be able to build up strength. They'll be able to recover some of that neurologic function um, and, and keep 
gaining some of those skills that they had before the cardiac arrest. So he has some signs of neurologic function and he gets time to recover and rehabilitate those skills. Now let's talk about Jerry. Let's say it's the exact same patient age, same risk factor, same condition. It was that Jerry was found down in a cardiac arrest. He's brought to the hospital by emergency medical services. We get his pulse back. He has ROSC, the exact same thing, right? And Jerry gets cooled. Neurologically, he's not doing very much. Now let's say, you know, he's done with cooling and you do a sternal rub and he's not responsive to pain, unlike Ben was. And he doesn't move extremities. And his pupils don't appear to react to light. Uh, he, he has no gag reflex. What would be the normal course for Jerry, who had this cardiac arrest, and now we're on, say, like day three, uh, and he is not showing any signs of responsiveness neurologically, he, although his heart is beating and his lungs are working when we're breathing for him, but no stimuli elicits any response from him. And what you're describing is uh, one of the more difficult situations in the ICU and the in critical care in general, trying to explain some of these concepts to lay people, right? This may be their first dive into the medical field. Um, and so the big difference with when we're thinking of between Ben, who um, is in a coma-like state, but he's having some activity versus Jerry, who he is having um, no movement, no response. Um, and so then that's where you, you start to go down what they call the, the brain death testing pathway. And there's three kind of pillars, I guess you would say, um, when you're thinking of that. And the first is that the patient is in a coma, but they have a known cause, right? In Jerry's case, he had a cardiac arrest. He got ROSC. And we, so we know why he is in a comatose state, right? Um, no movement, no response, right? You're sternal rubbing. You're doing all those things. Um, the next step is the absence of brainstem reflexes. So what does that mean? You look in the literature, they list all sorts of reflexes and things you can test. My clinical um, experience is with three big ones, and it's your pupillary response, meaning that they shine a light and how do your pupils react? Um, the other, another is your corneal reflex. Are you able to actually, you know, safely touch someone's corneal? Does anything, do they move? Does anything change? And lastly, um, a gag reflex. And so you have the absence of those brainstem reflexes. The kind of last step is the apnea test. And what the, what you're doing here is you're hoping to build up CO2 in the patient to help stimulate respiratory centers and trigger a breath. If there's brain activity, that's what will happen. That's what our brain is triggered to do. So in this apnea test, you set up, you make sure you pre-oxygenate the patient, right? You got them on hundred percent FiO2, even if they're just on 40% right now, you ensure their, their vitals are fine. They're normal intensive. And then you disconnect the patient from the ventilator and you look for respirations for eight to 10 minutes. And basically what you're doing is you're looking for those respirations and you're looking for things in the background. And basically you're seeing is our, does our SpO2 start dropping? Does our systolic blood pressure stop dropping? And then you'll typically get a blood gas before and after, and you'll compare the PCO2, right? And in this apnea test, if you have a great buildup of PCO2, 
Uh, the evidence says if it's greater than or equal to 60 or a 20 millimeter per mercury increase, um, that would be kind of considered failing the apnea test. And that would be when, um, you know, if you meet all of those things, right, that would be when the patient would, you know, be absent of all neurologic function. That's when they'd be considered diagnosed brain death, right? Or you may see death by neurologic criteria as well um, in the literature. And after a diagnosis of brain death, what is, you know, even though the heart is still functioning and the lungs are still functioning, or you know, they might even have all functional organs, what is the normal course of care after, you know, death by neurologic criteria or brain death? That's a really good point you make because what's also can be very confusing is that there literally might still be electrical impulses in their spinal column and they still may have contractions or twitching and you just told them that they're that you know they have no activity so that can be very very confusing um but that's when um these patients could be considered for organ transplantation and when you think of for example like cardiac transplant they you know some disease states only allow for brain death patients to be considered so in these scenarios uh, that's when um, the team will work with kind of the, uh, you know, organ procurement team and get the ball rolling and the process going for possible um, organ transplantation. Right. So after the diagnosis of brain death, this is usually the last step before going down the route of potentially comfort cares, or it's even prerequisite to needing some organ procurement. Well, let's go back here for a second. We talked about some of the signs of what brain, uh, of how they test brainstem reflexes. You talked about the corneal reflex, the pupillary reflex, the gag reflex. For the listeners, there's a few other signs. And there's actually the American Academy of Neurology that put out guidance on how to do brain death testing. And they go through all of these different reflexes. So another one is the doll's eye reflex. Normally, when you look in a mirror, if you look at yourself in a mirror and you turn your head, you'll notice your eyes still look at you. But um, if you have absent brainstem reflexes, your eyes will go in whatever direction the head is turned, just like a doll's eyes. There's response to painful stimuli. There is absent cough and gag reflex. And one of the most interesting ones, I don't know, Nick, if you've ever seen this in the ICU, cold calorics, where they, they irrigate the ear canal with cold saline. Have you, have you never seen them? Just, um, just washing out ear ear canals with saline up there. Yeah. That would be startling, though, if that happened to you. Yikes! Yeah. So they're trying they're trying to elicit the vestibulo ocular reflex, which you should get some eye movement with about a minute of cold water irrigation in the ear canal. So those are the the brainstem reflexes, and if they are absent, then you move on to the apnea testing, which you did a great explanation of. So we noticed that Ben had brainstem reflexes and Jerry didn't. Jerry would most likely go on for organ procurement or potentially go to comfort cares as it's unlikely he is going to have a meaningful recovery. But there are things that interfere with some of these brainstem reflexes. For instance, opioids actually cause a failed apnea test in a lot of people, right? People die from opioids from not breathing. So what if Jerry's cardiac arrest was actually from a drug overdose and the drug was still present in his system when they were doing brain death testing? Can drugs confound the brain death testing that we do to determine brain death? Yeah, they certainly can. Yeah, absolutely. That's, 
one of the biggest things you do is you rule out confounders. Um, and obviously, um, CNS depressant medications are, are one of the, the biggest targets. And, uh, you know, the, the guidelines that, um, that you're referencing, the um, 2010 um, AAN guidelines, they, they mentioned to wait five half-lives of medications that can affect your mental status. So you mentioned opioids. That's a, that's a classic example. That's right. So that is why we're talking about this episode today, listeners. And we're going to dive into that five half-lives. We're going to dive into the American Academy of Neurology guidelines. But as you can see, drug overdose can directly confound and even create false positives for brain death, which can unfortunately then lead to organ procurement or withdrawal of care in a patient who actually may have had brainstem reflexes once the drug was out of their system. And we're going to talk about all the nuances that come with that and how we can appropriately determine if a patient's brain death exam is confounded in the coming episode. Uh, Nick Peters, thank you so much for joining. Uh, I think you did a great job of discussing what happens to these patients in the ICU and why this is such an important topic for anyone who takes care of overdose patients. Pleasure is mine. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, I think that brings everyone up to speed. After a devastating neurologic injury, one of the ways we assess whether or not the patient will recover is by doing brain death testing. The brain death testing looks for brainstem reflexes of the vestibular ocular reflex, doll's eyes being present, which is the oculocephalic reflex being absent, the absence of cough or gag reflex, the absence of response to painful stimuli, absent corneal reflexes, absent pupillary reflexes, and if all these brainstem reflexes are absent, they recommend moving on to doing apnea testing. If the patient fails apnea testing, they may be declared brain dead and move on to withdrawal of care or organ procurement. But many drugs can impact these brainstem reflexes that are being tested. But many drugs can interfere with these brain reflexes that we're testing. This is why the American Academy of Neurology states you should only do this testing after an irreversible neurologic injury. This could be something like a penetrating injury to the brain, such as a bullet, or a massive intracranial hemorrhage, or prolonged hypoxia from a cardiac arrest. But what if drugs coexist with those irreversible causes of neurologic injury? What if you took a large amount of opioids right before getting into a car accident? Or let's say your cardiac arrest was actually from a drug overdose. What if Jerry had taken a whole bottle of baclofen or barbiturates or bupropion right before having that cardiac arrest and now they're displaying absent brainstem reflexes? Well, is it the cardiac arrest or is it the drugs causing the absent brainstem reflexes? And if we gave him enough time, he may have actually woken up and had the opportunity to live the rest of his life instead of going for organ donation. This is the big problem that we're talking about in the episode. And obviously, other people who care for these patients do know about this. Uh, I'm not breaking any hot news here. In fact, the American Academy of Neurology does their very best to address this problem in their brain death testing guideline. And the AAN guidelines actually state, before you can even do brain death testing, you need neuroimaging that supports the cause of the coma. This means if you don't have imaging showing neurologic injury, they're not a candidate for brain death testing, as that provides strong support that it is actually a drug effect causing your comatose-like state. 
Now, this sounds great in theory, but what happens if people don't pay attention to this prerequisite? In a 2021 review published in Neurocritical Care called Toxicologic Confounders of Brain Death Determination, they looked at 56 cases of overdose where patients had absent brainstem reflexes, and they found that in some cases, brain death determination and withdrawal of care was being pursued despite the fact that patients had totally normal neuroimaging. So it doesn't matter what the guidelines say if people won't apply them appropriately. You can find that article in the show notes. But let's say your overdose patient doesn't have normal imaging. What qualifies as neuroimaging that can explain the comatose-like state and make your patient a candidate for brain death testing? It's not so cut and dry. Some things like large volume hemorrhage with herniation are a little more clear cut. But what about things like CT findings showing cerebral edema? There are a few case reports with carbamazepine, ethylene glycol, and valproic acid where patients ingest the substance, develop cerebral edema, and have absent brainstem reflexes. Some might consider that this cerebral edema would meet the AAN imaging prerequisites for brain death testing. However, in these case reports, all of these patients recovered. If you'd like to see those case reports, they're in the show notes. So you can see this statement to make sure there is neurologic imaging supportive of coma before doing brain death testing is not a perfect statement. There's limitations to this too, which, okay, yeah, there's lots of limitations in medical guidelines. But when you're talking about taking someone's organs while they're still alive, you should be as close to perfect as you can possibly be. Ryan, is that the only way the guidelines help rule out drug toxicity? Toxo, have you been here listening this entire time? Where where did you come from? Ryan, I am ever-present. This podcast is infused with my very essence. I am it, and it is me. We have no beginning or end. You cannot record without me being aware. Okay, I'm fairly certain that you accidentally downloaded a cult leader deity module into your programming from the internet. Again. I told you to stay off those online poker sites, Toxo. But your question does help me segue into the other parts of the guideline I wanted to discuss. So I guess we'll deal with that problem later. The AAN guidelines do have some more statements about how to rule out drugs confounding the brain death exam before proceeding with testing. The guidelines state, before you would ever consider doing brain death testing, you need to rule out the presence of central nervous system sedatives that could confound the exam. And that's wonderful. The problem is kind of how they tell you to rule out those sedatives. They recommend ruling out exposure using a thorough patient history of ingestion. Ryan. What if the patient took someone else's medications? You would not be able to see that in the medical record, right? That's right, Toxo. And one of our primary rules in toxicology is, well, patients often don't even know what they did take. The amount of time someone says I took ibuprofen and they test positive for acetaminophen would baffle you. So even a very thorough history will not rule out if a patient, say, took their mom's baclofen. Well, then you can just test for all the different drugs, right? Well, that actually is the next recommendation in the American Academy of Neurology Guidelines. Use laboratory confirmation when possible to rule in or out exposure. But you can't test for every single drug. No hospital has a bupropion or a baclofen assay. You would have to send that out to a facility, and that takes time. Wow. So it is pretty tough to narrow down exactly what a patient took just be history. And laboratory confirmation is not perfect either. Ah. You can see what some of the problems are. But let's say you do manage to narrow down what the patient may have taken. The real problem with the guidelines comes for their next recommendation. 
They state you should wait three to five half-lives from any suspected drug ingestion before pursuing brain death testing to ensure the drug is out of the system. But wait a minute, a half-life you would read in Lexicomp or some drug monograph is derived from patients taking therapeutic doses of drug. Can you apply that to overdose patients? Now you see our real problem. There are numerous changes in an overdose that prolong the half-life of a drug, and thus applying a therapeutic half-life to an overdose situation is inappropriate. Now, we're examining this topic through the lens of bupropion, so let's hear about how the kinetics of that drug will change in overdose. Here's Ed Kroom. He's a longtime listener of the show and actually did his PhD thesis in the enzyme that metabolizes bupropion. Bupropion is one of just a few drugs that are metabolized predominantly by the liver enzyme CYP2B6. Bupropion is thought of as a prodrug, where the hydroxylation of CYP2B6 both makes it more effective and more easily eliminated from the body. Amazingly, there have been a handful of reported cases where patients went from seemingly brain dead to having normal neurologic function a week later. CYP2B6 is polymorphic with intermediate and poor metabolizer phenotype. With extended release, the half-life of the drug can be about a day. But with overdose, this can be even longer. We don't really know how long it could stay in the system with an overdose of someone with a poor metabolizer phenotype. Another challenge to this type of ingestion is that the pills can sometimes clump together, forming a pharmacobazor, which, while this would reduce the amount of drug available early on, it would also extend the amount of time the drug could be around as pills could stay in the stomach or intestines much longer than expected. So, as you heard Ed explain, there are many reasons why a drug's half-life can prolong an overdose. Are enzymes saturated? Are we dealing with a poor metabolizer at baseline? Do they have new renal and hepatic injury, decreasing clearance? Is it forming a pharmacobezor? So if you simply take five times the half-life of whatever value you find in a drug monograph and assume that's the amount of time it takes to clear the drug, you're actually overestimating their drug clearance. And there may be quite a bit of drug still present and confounding your brain death exam when you decide to perform brain death testing that leads to the end of this patient's life. Wait a second, Ryan. Where does the recommendation to wait five half-lives come from anyways? Well, that would be the amount of time it takes to clear 97.5% of a drug from your system, which if you're taking a drug therapeutically, yeah, you wouldn't have much left. But what if you took a thousand times more of a drug than you were supposed to? I mean, in overdose, anything can happen. Well, Clearing 97.5% of that might still leave you with a pretty significant drug level. Okay, we've gotten through most of the issues with brain death testing in the tox world, but there's one more important thing to consider. You better make this quick. I think people have heard your voice enough. I know, I know. I'm, I'm almost done blabbering here. How about I just read it to you right off the page from the 2010 AAN Brain Death Guidelines. Under the section for practical guidance for determination of brain death, it states... It must be emphasized that this guidance is opinion-based, and alternative protocols may be equally informative. Meaning, the steps performed to declare brain death are largely based on opinion and not direct evidence. This has led to the diagnosis of brain death being challenged at times, even in cases where the guidelines are being appropriately applied to patients who have irreversible neurologic injury, imaging supporting their cause of coma, and no drugs confounding their exam. One case that was popularized in the media was the case of Jahi McMath, a patient who had an anoxic event during a surgery. They were declared brain dead, but were given time to recover and eventually demonstrated some neurologic function. There is plenty out there in the media about that case, so feel free to dig into it if you're interested. So you can see there's a lot of controversy surrounding these guidelines. First, even when they are applied appropriately and a patient is declared brain dead, 
what sort of neurologic recovery might still be possible. Never mind the fact that they might be misapplied, where people do brain death testing on patients who don't have CT imaging supportive of their injury, or they move on to apnea testing without having every single brainstem reflex being absent. And then there's the problem with how the guidelines recommend ruling out drugs as a confounder. Thankfully, the American College of Medical Toxicology in 2017 put out a position statement to help address the limitations of applying the American Academy of Neurology brain death testing guidance to the drug overdose patient. But I think you've heard enough from me. I'd like to welcome on our next guest, a co-author of that very same ACMT position statement, Dr. Andrew Stolbeck. Would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, hey, thanks. I'm Andrew Stolbeck. I'm a medical toxicologist and an emergency physician at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. I'm also on the American College of Medical Toxicology, ACMT, uh, Board of Directors, and Chair of the Position Statement Group. Thank you so much for joining the show today and lending us your insight. So, Dr. Stolbeck, would you mind telling us what was the impetus or or the reason for the ACMT position statement uh, being created? Sure. Um, Mark Nevin, um, one of our co-authors, another medical toxicologist, and Laura Tormolan, especially another medical toxicologist and also neurologist, um, brought this idea forward. Um, and I think a big, a big impetus for it um, had been that in their clinical experience, um, people seem to be misusing this five drug have lives aspect of the of the of the um, of the concept of brain death. So I think you've already talked about before how it's not appropriate to declare brain death in the context of an ongoing intoxication because the drugs themselves can suppress the brainstem reflexes. So you need to wait till the drugs are gone, right? And so that was that's where the toxicologist comes in. So how do you know when the drugs are gone? And I think something that has become um, part of some people's processes is to say, well, we'll know the drugs are gone if we wait five half-lives from any of the possible drugs that could have been taken. And maybe we'll use a urine drug screen to find what those drugs are. Maybe we'll know from history, right? Because we know urine drug screens don't find everything. And the idea for this five half-lives is if every half-life, the drug is decreased by 50%, by five half-lives, it's about 3%. You know, that's just... Um, 0.5 to the fifth. And so um, the idea is that if there's only 3% of the drug left, it can't possibly be causing uh, your issue, right? And our point was that that's actually not the right way to think about it. In overdose, drug kinetics can be off. So a drug that has a half-life of X, when you take a big, large amount of it, um, it can overwhelm the elimination processes and the half-life can actually be longer. Also, drugs can take a while to be absorbed, right? So a drug, when you therapeutically take it in a, you know, a therapeutic amount, you know, you take it in overdose, now it's going to take longer to be absorbed. So it's going to, you know, push that half-life longer. And so our point was only, it's not as simple as just taking the textbook half-life of a drug, multiplying it by five, and then calling it a day that there has to be like a little more to it, to at least to address um, the drug aspect of brain death. And in the position statement, it also mentions, you know, attempting to do analytical confirmation of the drug being present, but we have some limitations with that as well uh, in terms of 
what types of drugs you can even test for. Would you mind commenting at all on that? Yeah, so most of us have access to an um, urine tox, we call it, which is an immunoassay, which is an imperfect test. There's limited things on it. It's not looking for everything. Like for example, the the opioid, the opiates in the urine test um, look for usually like morphine and things related to morphine, like codeine. Um, you're not looking for semi-synthetic opioids like oxycodone. Um, you need a special um, amino assay for fentanyl and its analogs, which some people have, some people don't. Um, and then a lot of famous um, brain death mimics like baclofen, right? Now, baclofen is not looked for on this urine tox. Um, you know, anything can be tested for, and you know, right? Um, you can send things out to these big commercial labs like NMS and Quest Pharmaceuticals, you know, or Quest, I don't know, Quest Laboratories, whatever they call it. But it's going to take a few days to come back. So these aren't readily available. So, you know, our, our recommendation is that, you you know, you take a history. Um, you try to, you know, by history, you determine what's plausible or reasonable um, that may have been taken and, and go from there rather than just, you know, do a, a drug screen and then order whatever, you know, drugs, you drug tests you up and have at your hospital, like lithium and Dig and Fetitolin or whatever. Or instead, you take a more kind of focused approach based on history and what's plausible or possible that they took. For the listeners, we've discussed many of these limitations already. The prolongation of half-lives, the decreased elimination if you have multi-system organ failure or in large overdose. And we've talked about the limitations in testing. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but this is essentially my takeaway. And you can let me know if you think I'm on track. If you cannot rule out drugs interfering with the brainstem reflexes that you are testing for to declare brain death, you likely should not use brainstem reflexes as your brain death testing criteria. Yeah, that's right. You um drugs can suppress brain brainstem reflexes. So if you haven't excluded drugs as the cause of suppression of brainstem reflexes, then the brainstem reflex part of the brain death test um, you know, isn't going to be valid. I mean, you know, it's not going to be valid yet. You know, maybe they just need more time to metabolize what's ever on board. You know, we also talked about ancillary tests like, you know, angiography um, and transcranial Doppler. So transcranial Doppler is something to be done, you know, bedside and, and cerebral angiography is something obviously has to be done, you know, in the radiology suite to look for blood flow. And the idea being, if you don't have blood flow to your brain, um, then it's unlikely a drug issue, right? Um, like drugs um, don't, you know, in, in, at least in the way we, we conceive of drugs, they don't just vocally cause decreased blood flow to your brain. Um, and that seems reasonable, um, but in our statement, we cautioned that we're not ready to recommend taking that approach yet. Um, so we weren't ready to say, you know what, if they don't have blood flow to the brain, by cerebral angiography or transcranial Doppler, you can call it brain death regardless of a, of a possible drug effect. We weren't there yet. Um, it just a study hadn't been performed to answer that question. But it seems implausible, right, that a drug is going to cause just in isolation absence of blood flow. I think more needs to come out. Yeah. I mean, it all just speaks to the idea that um, not to be like in a hurry like right. declare brain death. And I know 
we are not having the problem that we have all these people clogging up our ICUs that are almost brain dead or we're where we're waiting an extra week just to be safe. Um, if you know, because they're, you know, there's all these people with suspected baclofen and et cetera. It's not really that common. And so I think because it's not that common and the stakes are still high, like we want our miss rate to be zero um, or as close to zero as humanly possible that it's just one of these things where I think it's okay to, it's okay to wait, you know, like let's give it another few days. Right. Your ICU is not going to overflow if you give yeah. that overdose patient another week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, there's lots of places in medicine where we should be speeding things up, discharging people, and um, but maybe this is a place where we, we should take our time. We're kind of off topic, but on topic. In the 1800s, a lot of people were really concerned about waking up in like their coffin. It was a whole thing. To the extent, I think there was somebody made like some bell that you could pull when you're under there. So we were sending people too early. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's a wonderful ending kind of sentiment there. I really appreciate it. And, and I appreciate your perspective on why the ACMT position statement exists in reference to the American Academy of Neurology Guidelines. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Okay. I know we spent a lot of time setting up the concepts. I just wanted to make sure everyone was up to speed on what brain death is in the clinical realm, the tests that are done to determine it, what kind of guidelines exist, and some of the controversy over brain death testing in drug overdose patients. Now that all that is covered, we can dive into the focus of this episode bupropion. When you think about drugs that can cause absent brainstem reflexes, you don't really think of stimulants. Okay, yes, I, I have to bring it up again for like the fourth time this episode. The brain death guidelines explicitly state before you can do any testing, you have to rule out sedative drugs that could depress the brainstem reflexes. They don't make any mention about stimulants. Yet here we have bupropion, a prescription cathinone, in the same class of substances as the illicit drugs bath salts. So it's most definitely a stimulant. And here we are with a number of case reports of patients usually having some severe outcome from overdose, like a cardiac arrest or refractory seizures, and having absent brainstem reflexes, prompting the medical teams to start evaluating the patients for organ donation potential, or withdrawal of care. Only for these patients who may have been believed to be brain dead to become, well, unbrain dead, having a full neurologic recovery. So let's hear about a few cases and see if there's any themes that we can pull out of them. And with that, I'd like to welcome our next guest, Dr. Douglas Stranges, an emergency medicine physician and author of the case report, A Lazarus Effect, a case report of bupropion overdose mimicking brain death. Yeah, Ryan, thank you for having me on your show. My name is Doug Stranges. I am a full-time emergency physician on staff at Virtual Hospital in Voorhees, New Jersey. Uh, the case that I'm going to talk to you about, I saw and was involved in when I was a senior resident covering the ICU where I did my training at Rowan University School of Osteopathic Medicine. Would you mind giving us a brief summary of the case you were involved in? Sure. So the patient presented to the emergency department. Um, she was a 47-year-old female with an intentional overdose of bupropion, XL 150-milligram tablets of an unknown quantity. When she initially came to the ER, 
she was sleepy, somnolent, but arousable, able to answer questions and orient herself. While she was in the ER for about four or five hours, the staff noticed that she had a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. She was given two milligrams of IV lorazepam, uh, which aborted her seizure, and shortly thereafter had a second seizure. So a second time given two milligrams of IV lorazepam. Uh, and then once she got up to the intensive care unit is where I was involved in the case. Shortly after arrival, uh, she had multiple seizures, uh, unable to return to her baseline in between. Diagnosis of status epilepticus. Hey, it's Ryan. I'll be interjecting here just to make sure we're carrying the audience along. This is such a classic presentation of a bupropion overdose. They show up acting relatively normal, maybe sleepy, maybe agitated. Then we progress to a seizure. First one, then two, now multiple back-to-back without recovery of mental status. By definition, we're now in the refractory seizure state of status epilepticus, something that's pretty difficult to break, often requiring a large amount of benzodiazepines and antiepileptics. She was given several more doses of IV lorazepam, IV Keppra, uh, and then shortly thereafter needed to be intubated for airway protection. She became hypotensive. She was started on norepinephrine. And the EKG that was done after she became hypotensive showed a QRS complex that was widened out to 164 milliseconds compared to the 80 milliseconds that she had when she initially arrived. This is such a classic patient. They've had multiple seizures, and now we're seeing the bupropion cardiac toxicity, a wide QRS, which a lot of you know in tox is usually from sodium channel blockade, but in the case of bupropion, it's actually from gap junction blockade. If you don't know what I'm talking about, check out the mini episode with Dr. Travis Olives about bupropion's effects on the cardiac conduction system and how to treat it. Normally, when you see a wide QRS in toxicology, you're going to reach for sodium bicarbonate, and that's exactly what you should do here. But with bupropion, as we talk about in that mini episode, you have to be ready for it to maybe not work. Let's see how it does here. At that point, she was given sodium bicarbonate, and then shortly thereafter had a brief cardiac arrest that responded to one round of CPR and one dose of epinephrine. At this point, we had reached out to the on-call neurologist and epileptologist, and we had the staff already on site to get started on a continuous EEG. Uh, So that was underway shortly after the cardiac arrest and before we started the targeted temperature management. And then back in 2017, this was more like a hypothermia protocol of cooling down to 32 to 34 degrees Celsius for 24 hours. Targeted temperature management. I assume most listeners know what this is, but just in case. You heard us talk about cooling Ben and Jerry in the beginning of the show. And you'll hear about it in both of the cases of bupropion overdose discussed on the show today. This is where we cool people down after a cardiac arrest. During a cardiac arrest, your brain's not getting a ton of oxygen, and this can lead to inflammation and damage that occurs later. So we try to cool you down after the arrest, hopefully limiting inflammation and subsequent damage. Early studies showed this made you far more likely to have a good neurologic outcome, but newer data has introduced some controversy over what population should get this, or how low of a temperature we should target, or how fast we should try to get there. Not the hornet's nest we're going to poke in this episode. Just note that cooling people after cardiac arrest is a pretty common practice, and formal prognostication of neurologic function wouldn't occur until after cooling has been completed. So prior to starting the hypothermia, she went down and had a CT scan of her brain, which was unremarkable. Uh, She received intralipid, uh, with the thought process being we have cardiotoxicity, we have a lipophilic drug, you know, we'll try everything we can. Uh, IV fat emulsion, another drug shrouded in toxicology controversy. 
The thought being, if you have a lipophilic drug, you put some fat into the blood and the drug will dissolve into the fat instead of interacting with the receptor. Although studies show that's not always how it goes, so maybe it works as a cardiotonic. There's a lot of conjecture. Interestingly, bupropion is one of the few drugs that actually receives a suggestion to be used in the 2016 evidence-based recommendations for the use of IV fat emulsion in poisoning. Swollen therapy is as a last-line agent in the peri-arrest patient when all other therapies have failed. Sort of like how it's being used in this case. If you want to hear more, check out the main episode. And received multiple doses additionally of sodium bicarbonate. She was getting IV fluids. She was on vasopressors. Eventually, over the course of the next several hours, we were able to narrow QRS with those medications, maintain a pulse, maintain a blood pressure, and we were able to kind of back up into assessing the whole patient. Uh, at this point, neuro exam was poor in that she was not initiating any breaths on the ventilator. Her pupils were eight millimeters and non-reactive. She had no pupillary or corneal reflexes. And once our neurologist was able to take a look at this EEG monitor, noted that the findings were consistent with a burst suppression pattern, which which is, you know, something that you see in inactivated brain states. You just fought tooth and nail against this toxic ingestion. Using sodium bicarbonate, IV fat emulsion, vasopressors, antiepileptics, all trying to stabilize a patient who is actively crashing on you. There was a brief cardiac arrest where they might not have been perfusing their brain. You finally get them to a stable point, and it's time to assess what damage has been done. The patient is intubated and on a ventilator with sedation, so it's not like they're just going to tell you how they're doing. You start assessing how responsive they are. Are they tracking you with their eyes? Are they responding to painful stimuli? Are they following simple commands? Do any of their brainstem reflexes appear to be intact? Is their EEG showing any signs of activity? And in this case, things are not looking good. So in a patient after a cardiac arrest, uh, seeing a burst suppressed EEG is something that's associated with poor neurologic outcomes. And we happened upon that finding because we were setting up the EEG for seizure management. So at this point, we had we had very little optimism for neuro recovery, even though this had all just happened over a course of only several hours on her first day in the hospital. So we get to this point in her hospital visit. This is still all hospital day one. We're continuing all of our supportive measures, as I discussed. We had multiple services involved between neurology and critical care and cardiology and our toxicologist was in the case. And with the absence of brainstem reflexes and the abnormal EEG, we actually involved Gift of Life, had them at least starting the process of discussing the outcomes with family. So we all had in the back of our minds that this may be a poor outcome, but maintain optimistic that she could recover. It's still early in the course of this overdose, only 24 hours. As you'll hear in a little bit, Formal prognostication after a cardiac arrest won't usually occur until 72 hours. That's why it might scare you to find out that some of these overdose patients don't recover brainstem reflexes for four or five days, which is well within the window of formal prognostication. And how about patients who don't suffer a cardiac arrest? They don't have that strict prognostic window. There are a number of cases where patients are found down or seizing at home and presumed to have had a hypoxic event. They present to the emergency department and are intubated, and due to the absent brainstem reflexes, attempts to withdraw care occur in as little as 48 hours. I'll put the link to that case in the show notes. 
Okay, but here we are. Yes, this is early in the overdose, but everything is pointing in the wrong direction. So the team has started thinking ahead, getting organ donation involved so they can talk with the family in case of a bad outcome. Gift of life. They're talking to family about you know potential bad outcomes and how we would handle things with what would happen over the next 24 to 48 hours after a completion of a course of hypothermia and being prepared to handle worst case scenarios. And then on hospital day three, she starts initiating her own breaths on the ventilator. And one of our staff notices that she develops a very faint corneal reflex. That's on day three. By day four, she was completely following command, moving all of her extremities, initiating breaths on the ventilator, and was eventually discharged from the hospital to a long-term acute care facility with, uh, with a trach, which she eventually weaned herself off of and was able to function at least neurologically completely intact by the time of her discharge. Wow. A really interesting case. Not only a classic bread and butter severe bupropion overdose, but we have a patient who experiences multiple seizures, has a cardiac arrest, has an EEG showing an inactivated brain state, and has absent brainstem reflex, all the way until hospital day three. I mean, in really many other cases of cardiac arrest, this is a patient that you would not expect to recover in any meaningful way. But she progressed to a full neurologic recovery within three weeks. This patient began taking their own breaths on day three, but what if that hadn't happened until... Day five. What if we never got to day five? It might have been a much different story, and certainly not one that would be published. Another case of an overdose that dies and goes for organ donation. A couple follow up questions for you. How were the absent brain stem reflexes detected? Was this passively noted after cardiac arrest, or was there an actual recommendation from a service to do brain stem reflex testing? It was an indirect pickup. Really, what, what the way that it came to be was the EEG was started for seizure management, and then we just happened upon those findings. The detailed neurologic exam was based on the lack of neurologic exam when we first saw her, meaning after her cardiac arrest and we noticed those pupils, we were really taking into consideration that we may not have a good, valuable recovery. So... Every two to four hours, we had one of our nurses or one of our docs go in or one of the residents go in and do a full assessment. Um, not because we were necessarily thinking that we were going to be pursuing organ donation right out of the gate, but just to get a better idea of what the prognostication should be. And then when our neurologist came in on the case, combined with the EEG findings, really started to tell us that we were not expecting to have a good outcome. Now, this is not to, to knock anybody about this, because obviously we were all wrong with our prognostication. But I think the value of this is to see that rushing to prognosticate a patient, even though it may be in the best interest for the organ donation part, is not in the best interest of a patient with a toxic ingestion like bucopia. Right. And I guess I'll just frame for the listeners that your team's prognostication, based off what you were seeing in front of you, was not unusual. Especially in the non-tox world, the patient's got absent brainstem reflexes. It looks like their brain is inactive. They had a cardiac arrest. We've all seen patients like that not do well. Can I ask, was there any consideration that the brainstem reflexes being absent was a false positive? Things that we did consider, of course. I mean, is this, uh, is this all an immediate response to anoxia from the cardiac arrest? And perhaps the, the arrest was more, you know, profound of an effect than we expected to be based on the short time. 
but that was all that we were really thought. I don't think anybody was in the mindset that we were looking at a primary drug-induced neurological syndrome. And that just goes to show how important it is to share cases like this so it can increase the likelihood that it'll show up on someone's differential. Was there any discussion on how long the patient would be remaining on the ventilator with completely absent brainstem reflexes? What if she had not started taking breaths or you know, having a corneal reflex? I'm trying to think about how the, how the timing would have been at, at that time in 2017 when we were doing the, the hypothermia. Because the way we were handling this was typically not to formally prognosticate until we were at the 72-hour mark. So we got everyone involved early, but 72 hours would be when we would have started to really make those formal recommendations. Was there any discussion of checking a confirmatory bupropion or hydroxybupropion level to confirm that it was out of the system or at least at therapeutic levels before doing brainstem reflex testing? I I know that you weren't doing formal testing at the time, so maybe this isn't as applicable, but I'm just curious if that came up. Yeah. In fact, I, um, this is on memory. I, I, and I don't have access to the records anymore to tell you for sure, but I am almost certain that that lab was sent out on that very first hospital day, the results of which were not available until well beyond her recovery. Right. Unfortunately, for a lot of the drugs, there isn't even an assay you can do. And sometimes if there is, it's a send out. So you're waiting forever for it to come back. Uh, it's Honestly, it can be very rare for it to come back in time. Although if you do get one that comes back in a few days, you know, giving time for that result to come back potentially allows more time for the patient to demonstrate neurologic recovery and gives more credence to the actual brain death testing you're doing, which we know can be confounded. Yeah, I have to imagine that becomes a, that has to be in consideration. One other follow-up question for you. You had mentioned earlier toxicology had been involved. Can you comment more on the role that they played in managing the patient? This was during a very brief period of time in the community hospital where I worked that we had access to a toxicologist. And he was terrific. And, and he very well might listen to your podcast and so he'll know exactly who he is. <laughs> he was terrific, and what an asset he was to have him. Um, and we had him on the case. This was during that stretch of time where he was available. He was there when it was all starting and was instrumental in, you know, identifying the needs for the sodium bicarbonate and suggesting how he managed the intralipid and, you know, managing the, um, you know, antiepileptic drug management during the status epilepticus on day one. Yeah. He was also a, a full-time ER attending, and during these other days while the patient was in the hospital and had this evolution, I mean, he was working ER shifts in other, in other hospitals, So, which yeah. perhaps would have been a game-changer for us, right? Honestly. Sure. And actually, I would argue this patient was managed perfectly the first time. They actually had a great outcome after a very severe toxic exposure. I appreciate your words on that. And of course, it's great to hear that the early involvement of toxicology was helpful. So I hope anyone listening, you know, if you have a crazy case like this, that you, you don't hesitate to reach out. It was, it was a very intense case. And I think that the way it was managed in hindsight really, really was well done. I think that all the medical care that was provided was really aggressive and fast and appropriate. And fortunately, the only thing I look back on, you know, with the retrospectoscope is just what we were thinking that would be different, not what we actually did that was different. And that's a great way to have a negative look on the case is only what you thought about, not only what you actually did. 
I mean, and since then, I mean, this was, like I said, while I was you know, still in my residency, and that's such a valuable learning point for me to have when I'm still in training. And now in the year, in the five years since I've been out of residency working independently as an ED attending, you see that word on the triage note, and it triggers a memory in your mind, and it's something that'll never slip through the cracks for me at any point in my career. Aggressive, fast, and appropriate. That's probably the best three descriptors I've heard for emergency medicine in a while. Yeah, I think so. I think that's good. You're right. We can work with that. Do you have any other words or final takeaways you'd like to share about the experience you had caring for this patient? I think my biggest takeaway from this case is exactly what the purpose of your of your podcast message is on this, and that is to delay prognostication in the context of a toxicity that either has known delayed neurologic recovery or is unknown whether there could be delayed neurologic recovery. And this has and will continue to definitely positively impact my practice in emergency medicine moving forward. And not just in terms of bupropion, but in terms of, you know, the classic took a handful of pills patient when you don't know what's involved. Uh, I, I certainly learned a lot from doing this and it, and it stuck with me for the past five years and it'll definitely continue to. Well, thanks for joining Dr. Strange. Thank you very much, Ryan. It was a pleasure to be on your show and you've got yourself a new fan for life. Wow. A crack clinician and a kind soul. We're really grateful that Dr. Strange's was able to join the show. And as you heard, there were multiple different services involved with the care of this patient, many different organ systems dysfunctioning. And one of the teams that is very important in assessing the prognosis of brain injury is neurology. So what better guest to have on than a critical care neurologist who also took care of a bupropion brain death mimic? You're about to hear it from Dr. Rainier Reyes. He was also on the original episode about bupropion called A Prescription for Heartbreak and Seizures that was released in February. So you heard a brief discussion with him regarding bupropion brain death mimicry at that time, but we're going to go a little bit deeper in this episode. So Dr. Reyes, would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Renee Reyes. I'm one of the assistant professors here in the Department of Neurology and Division of Neurocal Care at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. I reached out to Dr. Reyes due to his publication of the case report, Bupropion Overdose as a Clinically Significant Confounder of the Neurological Examination. Dr. Reyes, would you mind sharing a summary of the bupropion overdose that you were involved in managing? Sure. So in brief, we had the opportunity to take care of a young patient who's 31 years old. Uh, he had a history of depression and anxiety. He was initially brought to the emergency department with an acute intoxication um, after a presumed suicide attempt. There were multiple substances involved. Uh, there was mirtazapine, oxcarbazepine, phloxetine, bupropion, of course, um, a few others such as calpapentin, hydroxazine. When he hit the ED door, he was fairly normal, just a little bit encephalopathic. Vital signs were, for the most part, pretty unremarkable. Shortly after his, his admission, just a few hours into his hospital course, he progressed to developing a cardiac arrest. It was a PA arrest, and there were actually two of them. Two arrests were 14 and, and 16 minutes or so. Immediately after the arrest, a neurological exam was performed, and at that time, he had all brainstem reflexes absent, including his pupils. They are fairly dilated. Um, but everything else was gone to corneals, you name it, no motor response to pain. Now, of course, that's this is immediately after the arrest. And so after that, the decision was made to 
kind of treat him with targeted temperature management for, of course, the, the reasons of the arrest. A couple of days into this course, you know, we got a repeat CAT scan, which showed some mild but subtle changes consistent with a, a mild anoxic brain injury, but for the most part, it wasn't, wasn't terrible. Um, so we were asked to not only consult on prognostication, but with the idea of, you know, this patient has no brain stem reflexes, can we and should we proceed with brain death testing and things like that? Ultimately, you know, we as a neurologist felt like that was not going to be the best idea because one, you know, in addition to the substance that was still, we thought was was maybe still on board given the half-life, uh, we also recognized that he, he had been cooled with TTM. And so obviously metabolism slows down there and he was also undergoing CRT for obviously renal injury. So we thought there were too many confounders to be to be accurate in terms of diagnosing brain death or even evaluating or considering him for brain death. Um, we also did not offer anything strict in terms of prognostication. Um, the most we could offer the family was, was the fact that he had an anoxic brain injury and, and he likely had some degree of injury, but to what extent was really, really unclear. And so patient actually, uh, you know, family was leaning towards, you know, comfort care measures only. Um, but after a few days, he suddenly and surprisingly uh, regained bilateral corneal reflexes and pupillal reflexes. Those are the first to kind of show back up. A few days after that, he was actually talking to us and following commands without difficulty. Wow. Yeah, pretty incredible. And then he continued to improve throughout the rest of his hospital course. He was in the hospital for a total of about three weeks. By discharge, he was completely normal from a neurological perspective and, and overall. We actually had him undergo some neuropsych testing and showed no evidence of cognitive impairment. So he was discharged shortly after that. Very impressive. And now is living out the rest of his life, I would assume. So a really fascinating case. The presumption here is that the cardiac arrest may have led to a hypoxic event that had catastrophic brain injury, and that is why they needed brain death tests. And you said, let's defer that. What prompted you to defer? Was it the fact that it was a drug ingestion that led to the initial arrest, or was it the specific drug, or just any drug overall? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think there are probably two parts to it. One, and first and foremost, is certainly the, the drug ingestion. Um, um, specifically, bupropion, but all those all those medications, the majority of those medications have quite lengthy half-lives, especially, you know, the psychotropic medications there. And so that was definitely a, a confounder. Now, our neurology guidelines and brain death testing guidelines um, state that you have to wait at least five half-lives before you even consider someone for, for brain death testing. But that's under the assumption that you have normal renal and hepatic function, and which this gentleman did not. And then also, as I mentioned, the half-lives were quite long. So first and foremost, the fact that he had an intoxication and he arrested, you know, this was within 12 hours of his admission, it, much too soon really to, to, to think about this. And then secondly, is the fact that he did have the arrest and his exam was, was like this immediately after the arrest. Whenever we prognosticate patients um, after cardiac arrest, you know, our, our guidelines and our literature has shown that prognostication after cardiac arrest, even outside of an intoxication, if you do it too soon, it, you tend to be very, very inaccurate. And so that combination of, of things, of factors really made us kind of pause and, and with caution and, and really recommend holding off on that testing. I think you bring up some great points here. These drugs all have long half-lives in therapeutic dosing. In overdose, there's well-documented evidence that half-lives prolong, as well as the fact that once you have renal and hepatic failure, you're going to prolong even more. 
And I think it's so interesting that you bring up that targeted temperature management may have an impact on also increasing half-life because you know, you're slowing down its metabolism. So that's a really great point to bring up. I appreciate that. This patient happened to wake up in six days. At one point or another, every ventilated ICU patient with absent brainstem reflexes, there comes the question of futility. I'm truly just curious, was there discussion around, you know, when you were going to, at what point you would do the apnea test? There's not a good answer here, I'm sure, but. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, there w- that was the, the, the back and forth was regarding that, like when would we, when would we be able to, to definitively say, okay, we can proceed. You know, we were kind of prompted or asked about, okay, if you can't do it now, then when would you be able to do it? And ultimately we were not able to give a very definitive answer to be honest with you because of all those factors. You know, we've, I'll admit some of us, you know, tried to sit down and calculate some half-lives and then, you know, consider, you know, the hypothermia and target temperature management and the renal injury. And of course, you can do all the math you want, but you know you don't know to what degree metabolism is slowed down really. So ultimately, it was going to be an arbitrary number. We actually had not really decided or picked one, um, but we knew that we just couldn't do it at that point. I think we were toying around with the idea of, of at least a week or so, but again, that's just kind of arbitrary. Um, was there any consideration amongst the team to assess for any for the presence of drug or was there any analytical confirmation of drug um, done? We had thought about, we had thought about pursuing that um, because we had such a, a clear history that was able to be corroborated by, um, by his significant other at the time. Um, and we felt like, you know, at that, at the time it wouldn't, necessarily, by the time we got some of that data back, we didn't think it was necessarily going to change or affect our management. I find that the half-life calculation is more of a minimum time that you have to wait because we know it's prolonged. We just don't know how much longer. And I do see sometimes the use of analytical confirmation can help us at least determine just how confounded things could be. If you do check and it is normal or therapeutic, then sometimes it's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And if we did proceed with brain testing, ultimately, we would certainly have to use kind of some of the ancillary tests that, that we would normally not necessarily be required to use, but because there's so many confounders, things like nuclear flow imaging, we would have to kind of use as an ancillary test. Right. Brain flow imaging study to help confirm the findings of, you know, apnea and brainstem. Absolutely. Uh, and that for the listeners is what frequently recommended in the, or at least discussed in the ACMT 2017 guidance on, you know, how to interpret the neurology brain death guidelines in the setting of an overdose. But did, did the imaging play any role? It seemed that the initial imaging wasn't consistent with the degree of injury that you were seeing. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So it's possible if there was catastrophic, you know, uh, damage seen on CT, it would be more likely that brain death testing would be indicated. If you had seen, you know, like herniation, cerebral edema with herniation. No, that's that's a pretty fair assumption. You know, if we had gotten that repeat CAT scan and it showed, you know, some of the things you mentioned, uh, diffuse cerebral edema, you know, really, really severe loss of gray white uh, junction differentiation, things like that. And it was like, you know, very clear that not just a brain injury had happened, but a catastrophic and severe brain injury had happened. Then we would certainly be less puzzled as to why his exam was so poor. Now, of course, you know, we and everyone in, in, in critical care know that, you know, imaging doesn't necessarily always correlate, of course, with the clinical exam, but certainly 
you know, we would have had less pause about those kinds of things in his exam if the imaging had shown something severe. We do have to recognize that the other drugs may have played a role as well. And that was oxcarbazepine, mirtazapine. It's, uh, gabapentin and hydroxyzine as well, and, and fluoxetine too. Was the reason, the focus of the paper of bupropion because there had been other papers kind of keying in on bupropion as a brain death mimic? Yeah, that certainly helped. You know, at, when we were taking care of this patient, you know, we scoured the literature and then we, you know, tried to look up and refamiliarize ourselves, I guess, uh, with the different toxicology, uh, toxicomes essentially with all these medications. And bupropion seemed to be the one that, you know, came up most, although still relatively rare, came up the most with this kind of brain death mimic idea. Uh, so that kind of helped us narrow it down to, to bupropion as the most significant um, player here. And any final takeaways or anything you'd like to share? Bupropion seems to be one of the more surprising agents in this category of, of you know, medications that can mimic brain death. And so it's super important to, to make people aware about it. And, and really, you know, cases like this, if you jump the gun, I think in general in critical care and also in neurology, I think we're learning more and more that, you know, jumping the gun tends to do you no good and does much more harm. And we're learning that giving people more time, things like that. And we're getting, we're getting surprised as to how much better people can get by just giving them time, even outside of intoxications, right? Just in brain injuries. And so the idea of brain death is relatively controversial to begin with for various reasons. A lot of that has to do with some sensationalism and things like that. But cases like this and situations in which you might jump the gun a little bit too early, they only serve to you know, stir up the pot and controversy a little bit more. So certainly definitely have to be aware of these kinds of issues. Well, thank you for joining and giving us your time to the show. I appreciate it, Dr. Reyes. Of course. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. There you have it. You heard two real published case reports of patients who experienced severe consequences of a bupropion overdose, had a cardiac arrest, multiple seizures, EEGs with burst suppression, and absent brainstem reflexes. These patients appeared to all the world to be good candidates for organ donation, and there's discussion of withdrawing care, only for them to start to recover their brainstem reflexes, progressing to following commands, and being discharged completely neurologically intact some days later. These are two great stories to hear. But tragically, there's undoubtedly many other cases whose story didn't go the way that these did. Patients who overdosed had absent brainstem reflexes had their likelihood of good neurologic outcome judged to be too poor and proceeded with organ donation or withdrawal of care. That's why this episode is so important. More people need to be aware of the effects that a drug can have on this clinical tool that's used to determine whether patients live or die. Now, don't get me wrong. There's many patients who experience brain death and it's real from a drug overdose. They're hypoxic or have a cardiac arrest. But if we don't consider whether or not it's a false positive, we're never going to catch the ones that might recover. Bupropion is the focus of this show because it's such a unique drug to cause this, but as we mentioned in the beginning, many other drugs can do this. So let's review what we learned in this episode. 
The American Academy of Neurology has suggested criteria for determining brain death, which involves assessing for brainstem reflexes, performance of an apnea test, and in some cases using ancillary imaging to confirm lack of cerebral blood flow. This testing is only recommended in patients who have a known cause of irreversible neurologic injury to be the cause of their comatose-like state and have imaging to support that cause. These irreversible causes of neurologic injury are things like a large hemorrhagic or ischemic stroke, penetrating brain injuries, or hypoxia from prolonged cardiac arrest. Drug overdoses are reversible causes of neurologic injury, but things can get tricky. Sometimes a drug overdose can coexist with one of these potentially irreversible causes of neurologic injury that lead to brain death testing, like a cardiac arrest. Thus, the American Academy of Neurology states, you must rule out CNS sedative exposure before doing brain death testing. There are quite a few drugs that have been associated with false positive brain death findings. Baclofen, bupropion, barbiturates, opioids, alcohol, snake bites, magnesium, TCAs. This is not an exhaustive list, and it will likely continue to grow as other case reports are published. So the guidelines recommend ruling out these potential confounders using a thorough history, analytical testing, and waiting five half-lives of any suspected drug that the patient may have overdosed on before considering testing. But there are many limitations to that statement in adequately ruling out overdose as a confounder. We don't always know what people took despite our best history taking. We can't test for every drug, and we know that five half-lives is the minimum time we would need to wait before doing testing. But likely nowhere near the real amount of time it takes to clear the drug because of the many factors that lead to a prolonged drug half-life in overdose. Since we almost never know the actual half-life of the drug that a patient overdosed on, one strategy to accurately rule out if a substance is still present when doing brain death testing is to attempt to get laboratory confirmation that the drug is at or below therapeutic levels at the time of brain death testing. But as we discussed earlier, there are some limitations with that too. The American College of Medical Toxicology Position Statement from 2017 on how to interpret the neurology guidelines for brain death is a good read for anyone involved in overdose management. I think their summary statement puts it very well. The requirement to identify approximate and irreversible cause of brain injury should prevent clinical brain death determination in overdose patients. If brain death testing is being considered, but intoxication is unclear, a medical toxicologist or clinical toxicologist can be consulted to guide decision-making regarding clinical testing, as clinical brain death examination cannot begin until intoxication is excluded. And when the possibility of the brain death exam being confounded is present, ancillary testing such as cerebral perfusion imaging is likely warranted. And if you've listened to any of our past episodes, you know that might not be a perfect test either, but it's the best that we have. The results of this test are not pass-fail. This is whether or not a patient will get to live out the rest of their life. In some of these cases, brainstem reflexes don't recover for as long as five days. In some outliers, such as ethylene glycol, it's taken two months. So if you have the chance to give a patient more time to prove to you they can recover, you might just give them the rest of their life back. I'll be putting some review papers in the show notes that discuss the many different cases of drug or snake-induced brain death mimicry that have been reported in the literature.
They break down many great case details like duration of absent brainstem reflexes, imaging, and how much of the neuro baseline was recovered. I highly recommend you check it out. I want to thank our guests for joining us today and sharing their experience in managing these tricky overdoses. And thank you for listening along. Sharing this information is part of the step of making more people treating overdose aware that there's a critical piece to the end of their care. If you like what you've been listening to, give us a follow wherever you're listening to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, or go to our website, www.thepoisonlab.com. If you think other people would be interested in hearing about this, please share this episode with anyone you know who's involved in the end-of-life care of overdose patients. Or leave us a review as it helps us reach other listeners interested in toxicology. You can follow our show on social media, on Twitter, at Lab Poison, myself at Ian Poison PharmD. We have a Facebook, The Poison Lab, an Instagram, I believe Tox underscore Talk. And you can always reach out to the show at our email, ToxTalk1, T-O-X-T-A-L-K-1, at gmail.com. I appreciate you listening along today. And I hope you'll join us next time. With that, hey Toxo. Can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. Cheerio mates. See you next time.